You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. We do have access to our slide notes today through our bulletin. You can access them on our Google Drive folder um, if you'd like to follow along in that way as well. So the last couple of weeks, we've been in uh, Hebrews 11 and 12. Um, we started with that Hebrews 11 passage a couple weeks ago and talked about the uh, the hall of faith, basically. The, these Old Testament giants who have been very faithful to um, trusting in God during difficult situations. Um, whether that was times where it would have been very easy to not believe. Uh, a guy like Abraham, uh, a woman like Sarah, who... We're told things and promised things, and yet they just can't really figure out how that's supposed to transpire based on their age. Um, or it was Moses who was very tempted to remain in comfort, right, to to stay in the uh, the joys of Egypt, and yet he is willing to step away from that, uh, trusting in God, trusting in better promises. And so we, we saw a, a lot of examples in the Old Testament of people living by faith and what that looks like, and we said these people weren't perfect, right, that there were flaws in each one of them. Um, But what's remembered about them is their faith. Um, What's demonstrated is their faith. And so we can find great encouragement from looking to their lives. And then in in Hebrew chapter 12, we talked about running our own race and and what it looks like for faith to get lived out in our own life. And so last week we said that understanding that countless others have run a faithful life, we too must lay aside every hindrance, keeping our focus on our future joy with Christ, which will allow us to endure hardships and produce peace and holiness. And so we said that we need to keep in mind that past runners have finished faithfully. And so I told you last week, I don't know that Hebrews 12, when it talks about the great cloud of witnesses, if, it meant, if it's meant to conjure this picture up of these guys like surrounding us and cheering us on as much as it is to remind us that they're already at the finish line. They've already succeeded. They've already made it. They're proof that it is possible to live faithfully and make it to the end and not to, to give in to the pressures of this world, the trials of this world, and to stop believing in God. And it's also possible to make it and not give in to the great temptations of sin, right? And so they serve as, as kind of a reminder, as an example to us, that it is possible to run your race faithfully. And so we said for us to do it, we're going to have to lay aside anything that doesn't help your faith, right? Anything that would hold you back and make you ineffective in your race, you've got to lay that aside. And so we talked about from an athletic standpoint, how a runner may shed some things that are a hindrance to his athletic performance. And I shared with you the guy that, that um, kind of cost, cost us a state championship because of the flowy, big undershirt that he wore. He hadn't fumbled all season, and he fumbled three times in the championship game. And the only thing that made sense was the fact that he wore this giant shirt Rather than something tight to keep the ball close to him, there was a lot of gap in between the ball and him, and so he, he cost he us uh, three fumbles in that game. And, and I told you, the next time I saw one of my running backs come out wearing almost an identical shirt, I told him, you got to take that off, right? Like that's a hindrance to what we're trying to do on the field. You got you to shed that garment, shed that extra weight, okay? And so we said it's not necessarily bad things in our life, but anything that would hinder us from progressing in our faith, we got to shed those things from our life. Then we also have to remove the sin that keeps tripping us up, right? And so we said to to wage war against that, to fight against the the sins that are kind of unique to us, special to us, the ones that we really struggle with constantly. We got to find ways to get victory over those things. We talked about accepting the race that we're called to, right? And that, that our lives all look different and all of us face different circumstances. And it can be very easy to be jealous of other people, 
and their race and how things are going better for them, but we have to embrace the race that we're called to. We talked about focusing on Jesus as the great example of faith for us. Uh, We talked about finding motivation to endure by looking to the future. That's what Jesus did in his own race, his own life. He looked to the glories of his future to help him endure the sufferings of the present time. We talked about maintaining perspective that others have endured harder times than you, right? Because the, the author challenges the people and says, you haven't resisted to the point of bloodshed yet. And so we told you that last week that it was, it was likely that martyrdom hadn't hit this church yet. They had been thrown into prison. They had felt some pressures. Uh, but the author's saying, man, it, it could be worse than it is right now. And it is going to be worse than it is right now. And so I've challenged you the last couple of weeks. Keep in mind, other people have gone through exactly what you're going through, and they've made it, right? They, they've endured it, and they've been faithful through that. I also challenged you last week, other people have had it harder than you and have made it and have remained faithful, right? And so um, it's a reminder to us, again, these great cloud of witnesses that we too can stay faithful in our own race. Uh, we talked about embracing discipline as God's proof of loving us. Uh, we said that discipline sometimes is corrective, uh, David comes to mind from the Old Testament and his sin with Bathsheba. There was corrective discipline that God brought into his life through the death of his son and through some other challenges that he faced with his kids. God allowed him to, to reap what he sowed there. There was corrective discipline with the church at Corinth when they were misusing the, the Lord's Supper and, and God brought sickness and death to that church as well. Um, but there's also other ways that discipline has been used. We talked about discipline being used in a preventative way with Paul, right? That, that God had given him that thorn in the flesh to keep him from growing conceited, to keep him humble, right? He hadn't done anything wrong, but God says, I'm doing this to you so you won't do something wrong, right? And so sometimes God brings discipline into our life, causes us to go through things that aren't desirable, but he knows it's for our good. It protects us from some type of sin, right? And then we also talked about an educational type discipline, that Job hadn't done anything wrong, wasn't really on the verge of doing anything wrong necessarily, but God brings him through this to educate him about who God is. At the end of the book of Job, Job says, previously I'd heard about you, and now I've seen you, now I've experienced you. So different ways to understand discipline. The author of Hebrews says, man, don't grow discouraged in the times of discipline. Uh, In fact, grow very concerned if you don't see discipline in your life, because discipline is a sign that God loves you. It's a sign of sonship, okay? Uh, We talked about getting our second wind by remembering these truths, Um, that idea of strengthening our weak knees and and really picking up the pace and and not growing complacent in our life. We talked about striving for peace and holiness in our relationships, the need to keep confessing sin and experiencing God's grace in order to avoid bitterness, right? We need to come to God and get his grace, and then we need to be willing to give grace to other people. Otherwise, we grow bitter towards others. Don't forfeit the future for the present pleasures, Right? We saw Esau in the example, the poor example that he is. He forfeited his future for an immediate gratification. Don't be guilty of forfeiting your future for the pleasures of the present. And then lastly, we said the new covenant truths need to guide the way that we live our life from Hebrews chapter 12. So that brings us to Hebrews chapter 13. We've talked a ton in this book about how we don't do sacrifices anymore, right? Like we don't offer animal sacrifices. Jesus comes to Uh, to fulfill the old covenant, to remove the need for us to operate under the old covenant. So no more animal sacrifices, no more temple, no more tabernacle. We can worship freely. Uh, We do so trusting in the great sacrifice of Jesus. But Hebrews chapter 13 tells us what type of sacrifices we do offer. 
We don't offer animal sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices for our sins, right? Because I challenged you a couple weeks ago, don't mistakenly think that you're never tempted to offer sacrifices for your sins because we don't have the whole animal thing going on. And there's, there's no real temptation for you to bring an animal to church. I told you if we're not careful, we do try to offer sacrifices for our sins by trying to do things to atone for our sins, right? Like, okay, I messed up, I need to go read my Bible. Oh, I messed up, I need to spend some time in prayer. And we use those as ways to try to earn God's forgiveness versus using them to refresh our souls, right? And so Hebrews chapter 13 does tell us the type of sacrifices that we do offer. It's sacrifices of praise is what the author calls them. And we'll see what he means by that. Our summary sentence for today's sermon, we are called to offer sacrifices of praise by acknowledging the ongoing work of God in our lives while submitting to leaders who help us know how to care for and share with other believers. We are called to offer sacrifices of praise by acknowledging the ongoing work of God in our lives while submitting to leaders who help us know how to care for and share with other believers. Okay, so we're going to see how this, this sacrifice of praise is tied to the idea that God wants us to acknowledge him with our lips constantly as we go through things in our life. We acknowledge his sovereignty. We acknowledge that he's in control. We acknowledge that he's taking care of us. We don't grumble and complain. We don't doubt his goodness. When we, when we maintain that type of mentality, we are bringing praise to God because we are acknowledging his goodness, his sovereign goodness over our lives, right? So, We praise him by acknowledging the ongoing work of God in our lives, that it's a good thing of whatever it is that he's doing. We submit to leaders who are placed there to help us know how to care for other believers and how to share with other believers. So we're we're supposed to have leaders in our life, examples in our life, who model these things for us so that we know better how to do them ourselves. For our kids, Christians are called to praise God with our lips and to serve others with our lives. Okay, so we want to praise God with our lips. We want to acknowledge him, acknowledge that he's doing something in our life all the time, and we want to serve others with our lives. All right, Uh, in this chapter, and we're going to go through it, uh, the entirety of it today, um, but I think there's two major evidences that we see in this chapter for what it looks like to have faith and to how to live in faith. First of all, we should be enjoying spiritual fellowship with other believers, Right, like right off the bat, Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. All right, this, this idea of a familial type love, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. He tells the church, continue in this type of love. They were already doing it. They needed to continue doing it. They needed to persevere in doing it. Right? Um, they needed to enjoy spiritual fellowship with each other and living out our faith not only enjoying spiritual fellowship, but submitting to spiritual leadership. Those are two key components in Hebrews chapter 13. In fact, I would say our perseverance in the faith is directly tied to our perseverance in brotherly love. For us to continue in faith, to continue trusting in God, it's going to be tied directly to us continuing in brotherly love. We need each other to make it to the end. That's the way God's designed it, that we don't live separate from other believers. Right? So if we continue in brotherly love, it's going to put us on the right track to continue in our faith. Spiritual matur- maturity here is seen through hospitality, care for the less fortunate, and a commitment to good works. Those three ideas kind of run through this chapter. So spiritual maturity, it's seen through hospitality. It's seen through a care for the less fortunate. 
and it's seen uh, through a commitment to good works, which really echoes what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You'll remember several weeks ago when we were kind of talking about the vision of our church and how we want to be intentional with uh, caring for widows. We came to 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 9, tells us the type of widows that should be on our radar. It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Okay, there's the idea of, of good works there. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Right? These are the type of widows that should be on the church's radar. The type of widows that are living out Hebrews chapter 13. A commitment to good works, right? a care for the afflicted, right? and, a, and a willingness to show hospitality. These are signs of spiritual maturity. And that's not just in Hebrews chapter 13. That's something that Paul brings up to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. All right, so let's look here at Hebrews chapter 13. We'll work through the chapter quickly, try to draw out some key points, things that that I believe we want to take away from our study in the book of Hebrews. Number one for us this morning is to have an open door to your life. Have an open door to your life. For our kids, Christians open their homes. Have an open door to your life. Man, one of the things that, that Lauren and I have talked about with our kids is we want our kids to see other people frequently coming into our home, right? We want them to see us frequently going out with other people and and spending time with them even outside of our home. We want them to see that we are committed to letting people cross paths, paths with us throughout the week, throughout the month, right? We want people in our homes. We want people eating with us. We want people fellowshipping with us. We want people developing deep relationships with us. And we want our kids to be a part of that. We want our kids to have deep, meaningful relationships with other, with other adults in our church, right? We want, to, we want them to be able to invest in our kids as much as we are. Um, and so we want to have an open door life for ourselves. And we want our kids to learn that from us because I think it's very clear in scripture that this is an important aspect of Christian fellowship, that, that we are to be given to hospitality. It says in Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Number one here, I think love is very clearly seen to express itself through hospitality. Love expresses itself through hospitality. And again, it's not just a message that we see here in the book of Hebrews. It's also found in Romans chapter 12. Verse 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, what does that have to do with love necessarily? You back up to Hebrews 12, verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. Well, what does it look like for love to be genuine? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, right? So similar themes as what we see in Hebrews chapter 13. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. It's real similar to some of the things that are brought up in Hebrews chapter 13. Genuine love seeks to show hospitality to others. It also doesn't grumble when showing hospitality. When we're trying to be earnest with our hospitality, we don't grumble in the midst of it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
It's something that we're to be intentional in doing and something that we should enjoy doing as well, right? I shared with you uh, back when we were talking about hospitality several weeks ago, um, and I referenced uh, Rob in that, in that when we were up at school, we had, a, we had a guy who was on staff at the church that we were working with that kind of took us under his wing and showed great hospitality to us, right? Like he would have us over to eat with, his, uh, with him and his wife, um, they would have us over to watch TV. We would watch some shows together. Uh, she cooked like some of the best uh, Philly cheesesteaks like in the world. Um, so two college guys who were used to having to cook for themselves. And when we looked forward to the night that we got to go over to the Scarlet's house and kind of hang out with them and experience the hospitality. Told you, I couldn't tell you where our senior pastor lived. Like, like I had no idea. Like was never really even approached about ever enjoying that type of fellowship with him. And we were the youth pastors at the church, right? Um, But man, this other guy just really took us under his wing and showed just great hospitality to us. And that's what we should do. We should be willing to show hospitality to others. We should seek ways to do it. We should do it without grumbling. And I think particularly what we see here in Hebrews 13 is that we should be willing to do it not just with people that we consider friends that we're close with, but to try to embrace the stranger that God brings into our life. Now, I don't know that it necessarily means that we're supposed to just go onto the street and just start finding strangers to do this with. I think in the context, there was a lot of travel taking place with believers, a lot of travel particularly taking place with different spiritual leaders that were traveling around and teaching. And so hospitality was a, was a big deal. As Christians would come into your city, they needed a place to stay. And at that time, inns and hotels weren't always the, the most morally upstanding place to do so. And so it, it kind of necessitated this need for a place for believers, particularly maybe traveling teachers, to have a place to stay. And so he's challenging them and saying, man, be willing to open up your house, even to people that you don't really know, be willing to show brotherly love. So I think the implication here is that these are believers because they're commanded to show brotherly love to somebody who's considered a brother, right? Um, and, and the challenge here is that man, you don't always know who you're showing hospitality to, Right? And I don't think the implication here is that we're to try to get lucky and get an angel into our house. Right? Like, that's not the goal here. It's not, man, show hospitality because you might hit the jackpot and get an angel that actually comes over to your house. I think it just simply helps us to see that, man, God prizes this. And sometimes God does send people that, man, we just don't really know what's going on. We don't really know who they are. And we may benefit greatly from having them in our house as much as they benefit from being in our house. Right? But it should characterize us as believers that we're showing hospitality, doing so uh, genuinely, eagerly, without grumbling. Number two, (coughs) we demonstrate an ability to lead by showing hospitality as well, right? Because this is a required qualification uh, for moving into leadership within the church. We see this both in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. Let brotherly love uh, continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. All right, so this is certainly something as we move out of our study in Hebrews, we need to hang on to and we need to take with us that for us to live a life of faith, for us to make it to the end and to endure and to not apostatize, hospitality needs to be a part of our life, right? That, that maybe Christian connection and fellowship at a weekly gathering isn't enough and that we need that beyond the Sunday gathering. We need to open up our homes. Um, it's why we structure our, our C groups the way that we do. We want you to be in the homes of people in our church as much as possible to experience that type of hospitality, all right? Uh, Number two, be ready to serve the less fortunate. Be ready to serve 
the less fortunate. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also, uh, since you also are in the body. Be ready to serve the less fortunate. For our kids, Christians take care of hurting people. Christians take care of hurting people. So underneath that, number one, love expresses itself by caring for the hurting. Right? The idea here, and it's great churches that are able to do prison ministries where they're able to visit with inmates and share the gospel. Again, I think the context here is not necessarily that we're supposed to have prison ministries, but that we're supposed to be very intentional to care for people who end up in prison for their faith. Right? These are people who would have been cast into prison because they were faithful to the gospel, who were probably awaiting trial. And as I said earlier, eventually some of these guys are going to be put to death. Right? And so these people were essentially aligning themselves with the gospel by caring for people in prison because they were the ones showing up with meals for these people to eat. They were showing up with some of the basic needs that maybe they weren't getting or not getting very well in the prison. And so Christians would show up and identify with these people. Remember, it's the disciples who are very fearful of identifying with Jesus when he's arrested, right? Because to identify with him, to show any type of relationship to him might indict themselves, right? And so Peter and these guys are very quick to kind of abandon him. And Peter's still kind of hanging closely around them. But even when, when Peter's kind of called out, hey, are you friends with this guy? Do you like this guy? You know, he denies knowing him because he knows if I identify with this guy in prison, it might cost me uh, my freedom as well. And it's only after the resurrection that the disciples are willing to align themselves with a crucified Jesus. Here, the author of Hebrews is saying, man, don't, don't shy away from identifying with people that are hurting. Like, don't worry about getting, getting or catching what they have, basically right? You need to put yourself in the, in the line of fire with people who are hurting, people particularly that are in prison, right? But, but in general, people that are hurting, people that are mistreated, we want to put ourselves in, 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 in their shoes. We want to hurt with them. We want to help them navigate some of these circumstances together, right? Um, there's a lady that I work with who, who is going through a divorce right now and, and is, is trying to work through the financial piece of what that looks like, right? I didn't hesitate one bit asking Ben to work with me in helping her navigate through some of this, right? Like, it wasn't a question in my mind. I can call Ben, and I can ask Ben to set aside some time to do this, and I know he'll say yes. I know he is willing to help this person who's hurting right now, right? And so we were able to do that recently where our families got together, and we were able to sit down and help encourage her and help instruct her in some things. Right? Because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to put ourselves in position with people who are hurting and care for them and help them through it is whatever it is that they're going through. Number two, when we do this, we care for Jesus directly by caring for those around us. That's what we're told in Matthew chapter 25, right? This is where, where Jesus shares that um, when he comes back, He's going to identify people who have taken care of the less fortunate, right? The hungry and the sick and, and the people that are in prison. And, and he identifies people who have taken care of those people as people who have taken care of him. And he says, look, when you've done this to the least, you've done it to me. And so it's certainly important for us to keep that in mind, that we care for the less fortunate. And by doing so, we're directly caring for the body of Christ. Be ready to serve the less fortunate, the author tells us here. Love expresses itself by caring for those who are hurting. Number three, hold a high view of marriage. Hold a high view of marriage. 
Number four says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Hold a high view of marriage. For our kids, Christians value marriage. And we hold it in high regard. It's an important piece of, 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 of how God's designed his creation, right? And we've talked before about the gospel implications of what marriage is, right? That it's meant to picture Christ and the church, that it's a visual representation of a spiritual mystery of Christ and his bride, right? And so Christians hold a high view of marriage. Number one, love expresses itself by maintaining purity in our relationships, Love expresses itself. How do we continue in in genuine brotherly love? How do we let that continue? Well, it starts with us maintaining purity in our relationships with others. The idea here with with the marriage being held in honor and the marriage bed being undefiled is that there's purity before and after marriage. Right? That, That we're to fight for purity before and after marriage. So before we're married, man, we're fighting for purity in our relationships with others. Right, like we're setting up parameters, we're making sure that we stay pure. And I even put in my notes, Christians are called to be outrageously pure in this area. Right, like outrageously pure. Remember we talked, uh, we showed the video from John Piper last week where uh, the wrong question is, is this sin? Right, the best question is, does this help me run my race? Right, so even in regards to uh, purity relationship-wise before marriage, it's not, is this sinful or not sinful, is, is this helpful for me? Right? Is this helpful for me or is this a hindrance to my walk? Right? So purity before marriage in our relationships and then certainly after we're married, we have to fight for purity in our relationships. That we don't violate the marriage bed with other relationships. This is, this is to characterize the church, is to characterize Christians, that we, we maintain a high view of marriage, that we fight for purity in our relationships, that, that marriage is meant to be heterosexual and indissoluble by design. Right? Like, like marriage lasts. It's supposed to last. Right? And it's supposed to be between a man and a woman. That's how God designed it. And we're to hold that and to value that as the church. In fact, as we look in other parts of Scripture, I think it's correct to say that we avoid spiritual apostasy by avoiding sexual sins. We avoid spiritual apostasy by avoiding sexual sins. I put in my notes, sexual sin is a gateway to apostasy. It it, it opens the door to abandoning the faith. When we begin to compromise in this area, when we begin to uh, lack purity in this area, we are opening the door, even uh, ever so slightly, we are opening the door to abandoning our faith because we are opening the door to saying, God says one thing about this, I'm going to do a different thing. And that opens the door to saying that about a whole host of things in our life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right? So, man, anytime I come across lists in scripture that say these type of people don't go to heaven, they don't, they don't spend eternity with God, man, my ears kind of perk up, right? Like, like I, want, I want to look at that list and say, okay, like these are some big things right here that need to not be true about me, 
And it's not to say that, that Christians never fall into this or never experience this. But what I do think it's implying here is that this is not the things that are true about Christians. Like when you think about Christian people, these things should not come to mind. These things should not be true. These things should not be habitual in the life of a believer. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? It's not just sexual immorality either, right? It's jealousy. Right? Like, like envy. Like these things are big deals too. Right? Like these things are not to be true of Christians. These should not describe believers. Our lives should look different. We, we value marriage. We hold marriage in high regard, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Man, like, like these are big deals. It should definitely alert us. It should definitely... Um, cause us to pause and to reflect to see how serious God views this type of sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. <clears throat> Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Man, I hope we don't ever reach a day and age where, um, where, where young people who are not married expect there to be a lot of impurity in the, in the past history of their partner. I mean, I don't want us to get to the point where, where it's just expected. Yeah, I get it that you call yourself a Christian, but I fully expect that you've got like this long list of baggage and history. Like I, I, just, I just expect that that's gonna be the case. I don't want us to ever get to the point where we just start to talk about it being normal for married couples in our church to, to divorce and for affairs to become justified. And, and in some places, that's becoming more the norm. And you talk to some people and, and, and it's becoming more of the, the acceptable culture now. The Bible has something drastically different to say about that. That Christians hold marriage in high regard and high honor and they're outrageously pure in this area and they fight for purity in this area. Judgment's coming upon those who live in unrepentant sexual sin according to this passage in Hebrews 13. Like the warning is there for us. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We should be characterized by sexual purity and faithful marriages. I mean, let me just pause right here and challenge you. Pray for our, our engaged couples in our church, right? Because they've been fighting for purity, and now the fight gets a little bit harder because they've settled in now, right? Like the, like the, the targets now, the, the radar's zoned in. Like, I know who I'm marrying, and I've even maybe got a date set. And the fight for purity gets harder and harder for our engaged couples now. And we don't lessen the expectations. It's not... That's okay, you guys are getting married. 
right? Because there, there's something at stake here, what we're teaching the rest of our kids as they watch this relationship unfold. Man, let's pray hard for our engaged couples. Let's pray hard for our singles who haven't, haven't taken that step yet to pursue marriage with somebody specifically because their fight is just as real too. And let's pray for each other that are married in this church as well because our fight hasn't ended, right? Like it's a, it's, a, it's a misnomer to think that, man, if you just get married, purity becomes easy, right? Because, because it doesn't all the time. And, and the fight remains very real, especially for, uh, for those who, who have to leave and go to the workplace every day. And you, you interact with the opposite sex in your workplace. And the, and the enemy would bring individuals into your life to tempt you and to make you think this person's better than your spouse. For all of us, the prayer is needed that we would fight hard in this area. Hold a high view of marriage. Number four, fight for contentment in promises. Fight for contentment in promises, not finances, right? Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He he couples the idea of not loving money with the idea that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, right? And so our contentment is found in one of these two areas, either in our own provision for ourselves through the money that we make or through a God who never leaves us or forsakes us, right? And, and so for the Christian, we find our contentment in a God who stays with us, a, a God who stays with us. For our kids, Christians trust God instead of money, Number one, love expresses itself by treasuring security in Christ rather than finances. Love expresses itself by treasuring security in Christ rather than finances. Money can leave us, but Jesus won't. We don't check the Jesus stock market to see how his provision's doing for us, right? We, we don't have to check in. We don't have to get on a website and see, hey, what's the, what's the forecast for Jesus today, right? Like Jesus stays with us. He, he does not forsake us. There, there's, no, there's no variance in Jesus. And we live in a culture that's built on making us want what we don't have. And so this isn't just an admonition towards those who have a lot of money, right? You don't have to have a lot of money to be in danger of wanting to be rich, right? The, the credit card system has made it possible for us to live like we're rich when we're not, right? And to, to try to obtain things that we desperately don't have and want that we probably shouldn't have and certainly can't have based on our current income, right? So, so there's a great danger here in wanting to be rich or in being rich and loving that money so much that it causes us to wander from the faith as well. The encouragement to us is that God stayed with Israel in the Old Testament and he remains with us today. This promise comes, it's rooted in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Children of Israel are being separated from Egypt, prepared to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Remember, this was their great fear is that God would leave them or forsake them, that they didn't want to go into the promised land because everybody looked bigger than them. And what do we find out from Rahab? Rahab's like, we got, we've been scared of you guys for the last 40 years. You guys have been wandering around in the wilderness and we've been terrified that you're going to come in here and beat us all up. 
right? Like they were the ones that were scared as much as Israel was. Israel didn't believe that their God would stay with them and not forsake them. That promise is reiterated here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We see it again in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Jesus tells us the same thing in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? When he commissions us to be disciple makers, to be great commission minded, he says, lo, I, I'm with you always till the end of the age. I don't, I don't leave you, I don't forsake you, right? So we need to be content with what we have and intentional with what we gain, right? So this isn't, this isn't a, uh, a, a thwarting of financial gain, right? Because for some of us, God wants to bless us with additional funds. You're going to work hard at your job, and you're going to get the appropriate raises, and it may lead to better jobs down the road. I would venture to say that all of us that have been in this church since we planted the church make more money today than when we first started the church. Like, just from what I know about everybody in here, a lot of, a lot of the people in here have gotten raises or have changed jobs most everybody in here makes more money than you first made when you, when you came to this church, probably. So it's not, hey, be content with what you have now and always be content with that amount and never make any more than that. But I think the reminder to us is be content with what you have and be very intentional with what you gain. Be prepared to do something with the money that God gives to you. And as he continues to give you more, be intentional with his kingdom in that money. Does that mean give it all away? No. But it does mean to be on guard because there's a danger in money increasing in our life. The scriptures say that. Um, we need to be reminded to, um, to not let possessions define us. Mark chapter 4, verse 19. Mark chapter 4, verse 19. This is in the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seed, and it says that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. All right, so we, we could be in danger of, of the, the love for riches choking out the word of God in our life. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So we don't want to let possessions define us or cause us to fall away. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ecclesiastes 5.10 reminds us that money will never satisfy us, right? Like we, we can get all the possessions in the world and it'll never satisfy that craving if we try to feed it that way. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18 that it's hard for the rich man to enter into heaven, right? It's hard. But what I love about that passage, like he talks about the rich guy who's not willing to get rid of his possessions, right? It's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. I love the way that the, that the author structured that because in, in Luke 19, it's the story of Zacchaeus, right? Here's a rich man who's going to heaven because it's not impossible, right? God can do the impossible. God says, man, it's really hard for rich people to get into heaven because they just don't see a need for anything else in their life. And, and they love the things of this world so much. But if the Holy Spirit comes into somebody's heart and grips them with the gospel, man, they can let go of their riches, right? Zacchaeus is like, I'll give it, I'll give it away. I'll give it four times away if I need to, right? Because I found something better than the things of this world. 
right? We need to be content with what we have. We need to be intentional with what we gain. Be ready to give it and to share it accordingly, all right? And then number five, find faith worth imitating and provide a memorable example to follow. Find faith that's worth imitating and provide a memorable example to follow. For our kids, Christians obey leaders. Christians obey leaders. All right, so back in Hebrews chapter 13, Right, we want to let brotherly love continue. How do we do that? By showing hospitality, by remembering those who are in prison and are mistreated, those who are suffering. We want to hold marriage in high regard and, and, and strive for purity in our life. We want to keep our life free from the love of money, be willing to be content with what God has told us about himself, be willing to share it with others. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find faith that's worth imitating and provide a memorable example to follow. Number one, love expresses itself by remembering and imitating those who have invested in us. People that have invested in us. These aren't necessarily spiritual authority figures that, that hold like an authority position in the church. These are people who have just led us into the gospel, have discipled us. These are people that are worth remembering and imitating their faith. He challenges us to remember what we've been taught and to find encouragement by considering how those people's lives have turned out, right? Like, like hopefully you've got people in your life who, who were very instrumental in you coming to Jesus, who were very instrumental in you learning more about Jesus, and you, they're, they're still worth remembering in your life because they haven't wandered from the faith. We probably all have stories of people who invested in our life, but we can't really consider the outcome of their life because they got off the race somewhere, right? Like, like they wandered. And I would venture to say it was probably uh, related to sexual impurity or issues with finances or issues with bad theology. Like those are the three key things for why spiritual leaders fall, right? Some type of, of sexual issue, some type of financial issue, or some type of theological issue that would cause us to not want to remember somebody that has wandered from the faith. But he tells us to remember people that we can, who are worth considering, consider how their life has turned out, a life of unwavering faith with God consistently providing for those people, because that'll spur us on to keep going ourselves. It'll spur us on to keep going ourselves, because he says, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Then he tells them that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's wanting us to see that, that the teaching that they believed in, the Jesus that they believed in, is the same Jesus that we're called to believe in today. He doesn't change. <clears throat> there, there's, no, there's no need for an update to, to, um, to Jesus, right? Like the people that invested in you spiritually believed in a Jesus that you're called to believe in today too. You can embrace that same faith today. We're called to do that. Right? And hopefully we have people in our life that we can reference and say, man, these are people that invested in me and I can remember them and I can consider their way of life. Right? Like I've got some, some teachers in high school that that's true for me. Um, Rob's a guy who, who's been instrumental in my life and getting me to where I am today. Uh, Brody at Snowbird, instrumental in my life. The, time, the summers that I've been able to spend there, the investment that he's made in me. I've got some professors at college that I would put in that category as well. People who were instrumental in teaching me what I know today about God, who have 
demonstrated what a faithful life looks like, who have given me a pattern and an example to follow. But I think the other part of this is that we need to become memorable leaders. Like, like our kids need to have the people that they remember to. And that's, that's us, right? So, so, the, so the, the, the call here to us in this church is that we become these type of people for other people, right? Like I can list for you teachers, Brody, Rob, professors in my life, and, and, and that's who I am for other people in, in my life right now, right? Like I'm, I'm a teacher. People have come through my class. I'm a principal. I'm a coach, like these are people that oftentimes people will say, these were guys who were instrumental in my life, my coach, my teacher, my principal, my youth pastor, my pastor. We have an opportunity to be this type of people for other people. But we won't be that type of person if we, um, if we don't fight for purity, if we don't avoid sexual sin, if we don't avoid dishonest gain, and if we don't avoid new teachings that are described here. Right? Like we have to stay on a, on a path of purity on a path of honesty with our money and a, a path of good theology so that we don't wander away into false teachings. That way people grow up in sovereign hope and they say, hey, you know who was instrumental in my life? Alex McLeod, he was my youth pastor. Topi was my youth pastor, right? Like these people invested in me. Rachel invested in me, right? Like that, that's what it takes to be that type of memorable person. It's somebody who fights for purity somebody who fights for, for correct theology in their life and they don't wander away from the faith when it comes to that aspect and, and they stay true to not loving money too much and not becoming dishonest with their dealings with money, right? We need to become the type of people that are memorable in the lives of others. I put in my notes, we need to provide the next generation good outcomes to follow, be worth remembering. He gets into this next section, I'll read it to us. We won't spend too much time on it because a lot of it is, um, what, things that we've already talked about. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin or burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. All right, so again, they were being tempted to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things, to, to fall under the Old Testament regulations, particularly in some of the things that they were told to eat or not eat, right? And the author is reminding them, man, we've, we've moved forward from that, right? Like we don't, we don't live under that covenant anymore. And so he's challenging them to adjust their thinking, to not give in to the pressures to go back to these old teachings, but to move forward and to progress into the new covenant. All right, um, this is where he brings up the sacrifice of praise to God. What does that look like? It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's people who don't neglect to do good. It's people who share what they have. These type of sacrifices are pleasing to God. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. I wanna give you four questions to ask as a point of implication from all of this. Everything that we've just talked about, what does it mean for you? How do you know if you're doing these things? All right, number one, am I regularly acknowledging God's sovereign work in my life? <clears throat> am I regularly acknowledging God's sovereign work in my life? He says, 
We want to offer sacrifices of praise to God. What does that look like? The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. I mean, there's nothing more honoring to God than for you to be going through something very difficult and to be acknowledging his goodness and his control over those circumstances in your life. I mean, he gets great praise for that, right? Because it doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense for somebody to acknowledge God's goodness in the midst of a discipline type situation where things just aren't desirable. God gets great praise when we acknowledge his goodness, right? And we acknowledge trust in him when everything would tell us not to. Am I regularly acknowledging God's sovereign work in my life? Number two, am I regularly responding to opportunities to serve others in my life? Am I responding to opportunities to serve others in my life? says, do not neglect to do good. Number three, am I regularly seeking ways to give to those in need in my life? Don't neglect to do good. Don't neglect, neglect to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And we can serve others through hospitality. We can give to others that are in need, whether they're in prison or just suffering. They're in need of something during those times, and we can give to them, help take care of them. And then lastly, number four, am I regularly submitting to spiritual leaders who are watching over my life? And it's a weighty thing as a leader in the church to read this passage, because what we're reminded of as leaders is that we're, we're tasked to keep watch over your souls, because we're going to give an account for it. So anytime we have discussions with people about becoming an elder in our church, the, the discussion turns very quickly to this passage. Are, are you saying that you are interested in being judged differently before God? Because you're not going to just give an account for yourself. You're going to give an account for the people in this church. Now, that's a weighty matter, right? It's a weighty matter. But it's also weighty for the non-leader because the expectation is, is that you submit, you submit in obedience, particularly to the things that are being taught from God's word, right? Not the preferential type stuff, but as we faithfully teach God's word, you demonstrate obedience by seeking to apply the things that you're hearing into your own life. Because we're going to give an account for your soul, you're going to give an account for your soul, and we're trying to help make sure that the account is a good account when you give an account for your soul. We're trying to lead you to be obedient to God's word. Acts 20, verse 28, and 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4 talk about this, this great matter of, of us being called to, to shepherd you as sheep and to take care of you as a flock. And man, we want to do that. It's conversations that we're having with, with Marcus through this whole process of him becoming an elder in our church as well. It's a weighty matter. It's a weighty matter. Are you regularly submitting to the teaching here at this church and seeking to apply it to your life? All right. We come to the end of chapter 13 now. Let's read this. It says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. All right, so the author is hoping to, to connect with this church once again. He's in need of prayer, probably in ways that this audience particularly knew of. He doesn't mention the specifics to the prayer, but just praying that he would be restored to them sooner. Verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this last part because it gives us our application, this, this thought that I want you to make sure that you get. We've talked a ton in Hebrews about persevering in the faith. We've talked a ton about staying, staying faithful and not wandering. Uh, we've talked a ton about clinging to Jesus when times are tough and when times are tempting and not letting trials and temptations cause us to wander from the faith because it does that for some. The great news here at the end of chapter 13 is that we can persevere and make it because Jesus will equip us to do it, right? The expectation is that you don't have to do this by yourself, right? The author says, Who's going to help make us do this? The God of peace, the one who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, the one who instituted the new eternal covenant. He's the one who will equip you with everything good that you may do as will. He's going to give us everything that we need to make it. He's going to give us everything that we need to accomplish his purposes. Everything that he's just called us to do, the Holy Spirit is going to empower us to do it, right? So, Are we supposed to remain faithful? Absolutely. And if we're believers, we will remain faithful, right? So we've said all along, this is not warnings that you can lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Because if you're truly a Christian, you will persevere to the very end. You will persevere to the very end. God will equip you to do his will. Family worship questions for this week that I would like for you to consider is to review Hebrews together as a family. Talk about some of the major truths that we've talked about in this. And we've flown through this book. Like we've flown through it in 13 weeks. We've covered a lot of material. Reflect back on the things that really have stood out to you and your family, things that you can cling to as we leave this book behind. Um, and I, I hope we've given you a good, accurate picture of Jesus. Uh, I hope you see why we cling to him. Um, but in case we haven't, it's why I immediately wanted to go into a gospel for us to look at the life of Jesus more in depth. So, yeah, we flew through the book of Hebrews, but we're going to settle into the Gospel of John, a book that was written with the specific purpose that we might believe in him as the Messiah. And so we're going to see that as we start that, that study in the Gospel of John in a few weeks. But man, what we see in the book of Hebrews is that we persevere, we keep holding fast, that Jesus is our answer when times are tough and when times are tempting. We don't walk away from him. We run to him, much like Rahab did. She says, man, everybody's scared. I want to be a part of it right? I want to be with your God, not away from your God. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Father, I pray that we would see these practical application points here in chapter 13, that you've called us to be faithful, and, and that's not a ambiguous thing that we don't know what it means. You've given us some very specific ways to do that. You've called us to be hospitable to people, to really seek to show love and genuine care to others, especially when believers are in need when they're suffering and hurting. God, that we would be faithful to, to interact and to reach out and to help people and to uh, identify with people who are hurting and, and to help navigate through that with them. God, I pray that you would help us to always uphold marriage within this church and to hold it in high regard and to demonstrate a high view of sexual purity to our kids as they grow up in this church. God, I pray for for anyone who is wandering in this area right now within our church, that you would call them back. Uh, God, that you would call them to repentance and to a renewed uh, stance on purity in that area. Um, God, I know we have couples in our church who are are anxiously awaiting and and pressing forward towards marriage. God, I pray that you would would work in their hearts and you would keep them pure. and, And God, you would give them a love for each other that expresses itself through purity. 
not just prior to marriage, but as they enter into marriage. God, I pray for our married couples as temptations come, God, that we would, we would resist those temptations and that we would not defile the marriage bed. God, I pray that as financial increase comes within our church to different families, God, that we would continue to hold our money very loosely, that we would be strategic in, in finding ways to use it for your purposes that we wouldn't become greedy and that we wouldn't covet things that we don't have, especially in the midst of, of this Christmas season where gifts are gonna be exchanged. God, help us to be great examples to our kids that we don't find joy and contentment in our possessions. We find it in a Jesus who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, I pray that you would allow us to, to see faithful individuals in our life and to be able to consider their their outcome of their faith. God, help us to be that type of example to others in our church as well. God, help our kids to have men and women who they can look to in this church, who they can attest down the road as being people who invested in their life and have demonstrated to them a type of faith that's worth imitating. God, we thank you for the things that we've learned in Hebrews. Help us not to simply have been hearers of it, but help us to be doers of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.